every place that makes wine has some hidden treasures there and, and, and any idiot can find some 100 point wine that somebody else gave 100 points to or that has a tremendous history of, of greatness. It, it takes a little more, not much, but a little more talent to, to ferret out the cool stuff that doesn't cost a fortune. You're listening to Everyday Food and Wine, the show about innovators, creators, and experts in the fields of food and wine. I'm Sarah Faraday, and on this episode, I sit down with Doug Frost, who is one of only four people in the world to pass the rigorous Master Sommelier and Master of Wine examinations. He is an icon in the wine world, and we discuss everything from his amazing journey to the top of the wine industry, to his views on the 100-point rating system, as well as debunk some of the greatest myths of blind tasting a glass of wine. Doug Frost is truly a jack-of-all-trades and a master of two. He's an author and wine consultant based in Kansas City, Missouri. According to USA Today, Frost likely knows as much as anyone in the world about how to make, market, serve, and identify wines. Just to start off, can you tell me about your upbringing? I mean, were you exposed to wine at a young age, or where did where did the love begin? Well, um, I certainly wasn't exposed to wine. I, I, I recall the first time I ever tasted a glass of wine; it was it was fairly life changing. But I was 15 years old at that point. Um, my family, though they're from the Bay Area, um, we moved to the Midwest when I was a little kid, and so drinking didn't really happen, quote unquote, in the home. Although I do have recollections of my father coming home from work and going into the kitchen. You really didn't talk to him until he'd been in there for a couple of minutes. You might hear some, <laughs> you know, ice clinking in a glass and a little cupboard open and then close. And then he'd wash out the glass and he'd be in a much better mood. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd just do a brief, brief stopover after work in the kitchen. And, um, but so I, I, I do absolutely remember, I mean, my dad had let me try beer. He'd let me try um, whiskey. And, and I think it was sort of as a joke, you know, here, kid, you really want to try this stuff? Um, but when I was 15, we would go to the Bay Area every Christmas to go visit all the relatives. And, you know, it was kind of a fun thing. You sleep on the floor of, you know, your cousin's floor and, and hang out with family. And we'd have one big dinner at, at uh, my uncle Gene's house and he had a wine cellar. I mean, I've never seen anything like that before. And in fact, that particular uh, Christmas, he said, Hey, Doug, you want to help me pick a bottle of wine? I'm like, yeah, you know, so at 15, we went down there and I still, I, I very much remember what he told me, which is he explained he had Cabernet Sauvignon and, and, uh, these are, you know, it's usually considered kind of the, the king of wines, but he also had some Pinot Noir and Pinot Noir was, uh, for some people, maybe not as interesting, but a lot of other people think maybe it's more elegant. It's more nuanced sort of wine. And I, yeah. And I do remember thinking, you know, well, that's me, you know, at 15, I'm, I'm elegant, you know. So um, I picked a 1968 special select Pinot Noir from Louis Martini. And that was like, I remember tasting it and going, so this is wine? This this is really good. This is cool, you know. So um, we, we had that wine and I have obviously been obsessed with it ever since in kind of a Pinot Noir uh, fanatic as well. And, um, but, you know, just so I don't seem too abnormal, the next wine I had was, um, country quencher 
And the wine after that was Strawberry Hill. And the first wine I ever bought in a restaurant was Blue Nun. And I knew I was getting lucky that night because I'm, you know, I'm springing for a bottle of Blue Nun. Things are going to go well. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Uh, but you, so you loved wine. It kind of opened your eyes to it, you know, and exploring the different varietals and, you know, the nuances in it. But when you first started to really like um, pursue what you wanted to do, you went off to college You and you studied, uh, you were pursuing a degree in theater. Yeah. Would, you, <laughs> would yeah. you say that there's any correlation between theater and being involved in the wine industry? Well, my, my, uh, I started in restaurants when I was 14 and, and definitely there is a connection between restaurants and theater without any question. And it's not just that out of work actors, uh, are waiters, <laughs> but that was, that was also my story. Um, because finding, finding work after college was, was not an easy thing. Um, but I, I certainly found, uh, that I fit in well at, at restaurants as I had before I, I uh, entered college and and uh, during and um, just immediately uh, got sort of uh, pulled under the wing of the sommelier in this particular restaurant in Kansas City where I was working, uh, a gentleman named John Scupney who now owns a uh, a winery in Napa called Lang and Reed, um, named after his two sons, and uh, he was my first mentor and he. Uh, invited me to some wine tastings like within a week or so of working at this restaurant because he said, wow, you really you know, seem to know a, a bit about wine. I didn't know the first thing about wine, but I knew how to sell. You know, So I was selling wine and I was selling expensive wine when I could. And he was like, well, why don't you come to some wine tastings? And that really, you know, that just changed everything. That was like, it was like that same revelation again when I was 15. Oh, this is wine. Oh, this is what people are talking about. This is cool. I want to do this stuff. This is fun. So at that point then, did you, I mean, you were great at selling naturally, the, a theater major. Um, yes. Did you, did you feel like you could, you know, like, because we hear about like super tasters, right? Where you can really pick out the nuances in the wine and you have a very sensitive palate, which we will get into. Um, did you like, was there something like that that he recognized in you or just kind of like a passion thing? No, I think he just thought I uh, thought it was fun and that I would think it was cool and that I was good at selling wine. And his job was to make sure that wine was being sold there. So I, I think he just thought, you know, hey, this kid's pretty uh, enthusiastic about this. I might as well uh, take him to a, a wine tasting or two and immediately fell in with a group of, of tasters who um, were very serious about what they did and really adventurous at the same time. And and I think the, um, I, I certainly believe that we had the, the, the benefit of being in the Midwest uh, but in a big enough city that we could get, you know, virtually any wine that we wanted to go after, but that we were very open to um, what was there. There was the expectation that we didn't know about stuff. Um, I've always felt like that was one of the advantages I had early in my career was that I knew I didn't know it. And and I didn't, I wasn't working in a restaurant where if I didn't know it, I, sh I would have to hide that, that where I would, you know, try to bullshit people. It was like, no, the the thing is, I know I don't know. And, and everybody I'm learning with, we know we don't know. So we're open to anything. We'll try anything. And we're, you know, trying to learn about everything. 
I think that's really, it's really great because so often we're afraid to say when we don't know something for fear of sounding, you know, stupid or ignorant. And it's to be in an, and especially in wine, I think a lot of people are afraid to ask questions. So being in that environment had to be hugely beneficial. I think it was. I, I really do feel sorry a lot of times for some of the students that I run into where I can, I can see that it's, it's not okay for them to not know stuff. And it's, for me, it's like, oh, for God's sakes, nobody knows all this stuff. You know, nobody even knows it, it, the majority of it, even a fraction of it. And, and so you just have to admit your ignorance and have to be comfortable with that if you're going to learn anything. I love that. So then after that, you did some traveling, right? So uh, can you share a little bit about uh, that experience and how that impacted you? Well, um, my traveling happened right after college. Um, I had saved up a bit of money and and decided, you know, I had to do the the European trip thing. And I absolutely, I, yeah, you know, I mean, for whatever reason, I I I you know gotten enough cash together that I thought I could do that. And within about a week of being in Europe, I realized there's no way my money's going to last even a month or so. I got to get out of here. And and I knew one guy. Um, from my college days who I'd hung out with a little bit who was living in India. And I thought, okay, screw it. I'm going to India, man. My money's going to last me a lot longer there. And I stashed a bunch of my stuff in Germany and hopped the, you know, the Orient Express and, and uh, took off and, and ended up in, in Istanbul where I was just waiting for visas to, to get together, you know, to, to head to India, to go through uh, Iran and Afghanistan and, and all of Turkey and, and such. And, and that was, and that's what I did. And so when I came back from um, from India uh, about four months later, that's when I started working at the at the restaurant, um, trying to trying to get my cash back together. I had about four dollars and some change left in my pocket when I came back from from India. Wow. One of the things that I would love you touch on it really briefly, but I'd love to touch on it more. It's just so crazy. So. One thing we have in common is that we've both spent time in Afghanistan, but your time in Afghanistan was very different than mine. Can you talk, like you wandered through Afghanistan. Can you talk a little bit about just that experience and being so young and, and having, you know, that travel under your belt? Yeah, it was pretty wild and woolly um, in those days. I, um, when we arrived on the border, um, we, uh, between Iran and Afghanistan, it was, um, the middle of the night. And, and, uh, in those days, if you, when you, when you went across that border, you would be, um, in a generally, you know, kind of a large van, uh, with guys with, uh, machine guns in their hands sitting on top because it was no man's land. There was about, I can't recall, maybe 12 miles of no man's land there. And, and, it was it was not a not a good place uh, to travel across. So you you went that way, and and so it's it's quite a story for me. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget it. We we um, got to the border, and um, we uh, are we think ready to go, and then the driver turns around and drives back, and we're all really perplexed as to what's going on. Now we being just a a bunch of uh, foreigners, but um, I would say in the van were probably about fifteen of us, maybe twelve to fifteen of us, and and a little more than half were Europeans. I was the only American, but you know it was a little smattering of people trying to speak either French or English or Spanish to each other, and and 
and we get back to the um, uh, Iranian side, and the driver gets out, and suddenly, and we're we're all you know trying to discuss what's what's going on, and all of a sudden there is this crowd of hundreds of people there, and and I you know it's like what's going on now, and we're sitting in front of some official looking building that we had driven past before, and I and and we look out um, the van door because the van door is open. And suddenly see the driver backing out of the doorway with a, a man in a military uniform, punching him in the face. And he falls back. And I, I jump out of the van and I go running up and I'm like, stop it, stop it, stop it. Oh. You know, and, and the, the, um, the, the crowd starts yelling at me going, no, no, not for foreigners. And the, the military man goes, no, no, not for foreigners, you know? And I'm like, no. And I'm yelling. He's like our driver. And the driver jumps up and looks at me, he's, you know, bleeding from the face. He's like, no, no, not for foreigners. You know? I'm like, what? <laughs> so, so they kind of, you know, shepherd me back into the van. We're all sitting there and everybody's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know, you know? And it, and it turns out in, in retrospect, what was going on is he was smuggling some stuff across the border and he lost his nerve. Um, and it, because it, had he been caught, he would have he would have lost his life. So he kind of went back and turned himself in. So we sat at the border for about twelve hours, and while they tried to find another driver, and so we end up in in, in Afghanistan. I'm sorry for <laughs> bending your ear on this crazy tale. At like no, two, this is fascinating. Oh, you know, it's like two in the morning, and we they they drop us off seemingly in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we can see some city lights or maybe, you know, a couple of miles away. And we're all just kind of standing there like, what the hell are we supposed to do? It's two in the morning. It's cold as hell. And then, then somebody, you know, is like, listen, listen, and we, we all kind of stop. And all of a sudden we hear this, you know, this kind of jingling and it gets louder. And, and that's <laughs> an Afghan thing, man. All of a sudden there's like three carts there with horses and they got, you know, bells on them and they got little carts in the back and, you know, we throw our yeah. stuff in the back and they take us into Herat and, and, um, but the, the hotels were closed. So we all just slept on the ground. Uh, I remember, uh, climbing under a bush and finding a, a, piece of tarp that I could pull on top of myself because I was freezing my rear end off. Oh and, my gosh. Um, and, and, but in those days, you know, Herat was the most beautiful place. Um, it was before the, the Russians bombed it into nothingness. Apparently I, I've not been back, but uh, it was, it was an astoundingly beautiful old, uh, you know, mountain city. It was, it was amazing. It was, it was known for like, you could go there to ski or, um, you, you know, for that sort of winter sport. Is that right? Well, I, I, I don't really know. For me, it was just, you know, I was um, living on, a, on, on, you know, pennies most of the time and just wandering the, the streets and, and uh, seeing what I could see. Uh, really, wow. I, I don't know that if there were mountain sports there at that time. I certainly wasn't aware of it. I was just in the, in the town itself and getting something to eat and checking it out and having a good time. And then, you know, moved on from there. So. That's amazing. Did you have any idea like what you were going into? Did your, your family know where all you were traveling? What were kind of their thoughts on this? You know, it just seems like you have just such a zest for everything in life, which is amazing. <laughs> well, I was um, I was certainly not being a very responsible uh, youth. I um, I ended up um, well, you know, I ended up in in Pakistan. I had not um, gotten a visa for India 
I had pretty much just kind of uh, acted as as um, irresponsibly as I possibly could up to that point in time. I was just being, you know, an American I- idiot, and and um, my family knew I was somewhere in Asia. They honestly had no idea where I was. And and once my money ran out, which happened in in Pakistan after I got uh, toffed, tossed off the train going into India, it was in a little town um, where I, I for a few days just hung out with a with a Baba, you know, with a, uh, a guy who just, we slept under a banyan tree and he walked around and, and we ate pickled limes. That was, that was dinner. You know, um, I was running out of money after a while in Pakistan, trying to wait for my uh, visa to happen. So I, I took my last eight bucks and, and sent a, a telegram to my parents saying, you know, cash out what I have left, um, send it to this, um, you know, to, to, to this, uh, Wells Fargo and, and, uh, then I'll be okay. Um, but I, with with that money, I still remember all I could send them was was sick, am well, s- you know, send two hundred and fifty dollars to this address, be home in a few months, you know, and that was all the money <laughs> I had left. And so my parents agonized on it for a couple of weeks before they sent the money. Uh, during which time I I had no money left, so I started sleeping on the streets. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a very weird time <laughs> going wow. to the Fargo office every day going, the money's got to be here. Like, nope, nothing here. You know, I'm like, God damn, man, what are you <laughs> doing? But yeah, I'd gotten, I, I, uh, in, while I was in Iran, there was a cholera epidemic and I'd gotten very sick there. Uh, it was just, it was just severe food poisoning, but there was, I was in a cholera epi- uh, 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 clinic, um, and, you know, with people perishing around me, I, I got better as soon as they got some, uh, you know, got some antibiotics in me and, and, uh, transfusion of, of, you know, liquids and that sort of thing. So I got better, but, um, <laughs> so that's why I sent to my folks, here's why I've been quiet. I was oh my sick, God. You know, I'm oh. run out of money. <laughs> oh, well. Oh my gosh! Well, so so then, what after that? You went you went back to Kansas City, or were you, did you stay there for a while? Yeah, no, I went back to Kansas City, where I, where I still am. I spent about a week in New York uh, City with some friends of mine, kind of uh, decompressing from four months overseas, uh, you know, in Asia primarily, and uh, then got home and I went to work uh, at a uh, grocery store. Uh, for a while. And then I uh, started uh, working with a friend trying to sell theatrical programs and uh, eventually ended up at the, at the restaurant. Um, once that, that gig sort of fell apart and, and uh, that's when I suddenly fell into wine, um, really had not paid attention to it much before that. Although I still remember my meal in, in uh, Nantes when I first got to um, Europe initially, I, I, was instructed by my guidebook, my Lonely Planet guidebook, to go to this particular restaurant and get a, buff, a bowl of, of mules and drink some muscadet. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool too. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So the, back in uh, back in Kansas City, can you describe the food and wine scene there a little bit? Yeah, it was actually a really interesting wine scene and and a decent food scene as well in those days. This is um, the late seventies we're talking about. Um, there was a um, there, there was a, a company called Gilbert Robinson, which owned a whole bunch of Houlihan's, but also owned a bunch of white tablecloth restaurants, both in Kansas City and on the East Coast and in uh, in the Northeast and such. And they uh, you know the headquarters was in Kansas City. 
the um, any any manager of this at that time about 115 restaurants that was was hired would come to Kansas City and usually work for up to a year uh, first do the training and then work at one of the restaurants in Kansas City to kind of make sure that they were you know up to scratch before they were moved off to uh, one of the other cities and they had a good wine program because um, Paul Robinson and Joe Gilbert the the owners of this company were particularly Paul Robinson was really savvy to wine. Uh, especially for those days, but they knew there was a lot of uh, profit and a lot of you know revenue in in wine sales. Um, that that restaurant that I ended up uh, you know working at was kind of their their the crown jewel at least at the time for Kansas City, a place called Plaza Three. So uh, what would happen to any really creative chef that uh, went into the the Gilbert Robinson machine and then decided that this is way too corporate for me? is they'd quit after the training, which included a lot of wine training, and they might leave or they might just open an independent restaurant right there. So there was all this creative juice flowing into Kansas City, really because of the people who were trained at GR, as we called it, but kind of were like, yeah, the corporate thing ain't working for me. I'm going to open my own little 50-seater. And you know, a lot of those places didn't, didn't last, but Plenty of them did, and they all had wine training, and they all believed that wine was an important part of their their business and their revenue. So I'm not exaggerating um, to say I, I was writing a, a wine column by that time in for one of the alternative newspapers, and I did a, a quick um, survey of all the restaurants in Kansas City. Uh, if you took the top 25, that the average number of wines by the glass in those top 25 restaurants in Kansas City was more than two dozen wines by the glass. It was it was seen that you had to have a very aggressive wine by the glass program in the early 70s, late 70s and early 80s, or you weren't a legitimate player. Uh, and and that just fed a lot, you know, fed fed a lot of people's curiosity because you can you can experiment, you know, by the glass. Interesting. So then since you got really good, you know, training in the restaurant, did, were you introduced to the court of master or the court of master sommeliers through your training or how did how did you fall into deciding you wanted to actually become a certified sommelier, let alone go on to become a master sommelier? <laughs> Well, it was, it is funny. I had, I did not know anything about the program. And by the time, uh, the mid eighties were around, I was, uh, I had, uh, gone into the wholesale business and I was the sales manager for a statewide company and, and really, uh, felt deeply immersed in the wine business and wanted to pursue the master of wine program. I knew about that. I'd read about that in the British magazines and, and cause you know, which I was avidly reading and, and, thought, you know, that's for me. I want to do that thing. And I tried to get involved and it really wasn't well established in the U.S. yet. But then I ended up taking the the role of general sales manager for this statewide company and kind of had to walk away for a little while when I was ready to get back to it again. Um, I I, uh, took the the first exam and which was just a, a essay exam and was accepted into the program. And I'm getting ready for that when a friend of mine uh, who had been my initial boss and, and one of my mentors in Kansas City, but now is living in California, he said, hey, well, I'm going to take the quartermaster sommelier's, uh, you know, uh, sommelier uh, exam, introductory exam, and, and I'm going to take the advanced sommelier too. Um, you should come to Chicago and do that. I was like, well, what's that? And he explained <laughs> it to me. I'm like, great. When is it? And he's like, oh, it's in two weeks. I was like, oh, my oh God. cool. 
well, you know, I'm the boss. I can give myself a couple of days off. And he's like, well, no, that's not going to work because the the advanced Somalia program is is uh, three days long and the intro is two days long. So you got to take the whole week off. And I was like, ah, it's out of the question. So he said, well, call Evan Goldstein and, and just tell him you're you're really good and you don't need to take the introductory. You just want to take the advanced. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I, I've heard of Evan. He's like, well, he's a friend of mine. So, you know, just tell him I told you to call. And so, so I did, you know, and I call Evan and Evan, I love Evan. He's just, he's hilarious, you know, but he's just like, ah, so let me get this straight. Ah, you, ah, you think you ah, don't need to take the introductory. And I'm like, ah, not really, man. I'm, I'm good at this stuff. You know, it's what I do. And he's like, ah, okay, it's your funeral. You know, <laughs> so, I, so I skip the intro. I show up at the advanced, you know, within an hour, I'm like, Oh dear God, what have I done? You know, <laughs> but I did pass it. I mean, that's that's the the miracle of miracles. I still passed the damn thing anyway, even though it was clear to me I was way over my head in this. There were people who were really, really good. Um, but at that point, I was now somehow uh, firmly involved in both programs. So I took both the Master Samoy and Master of Wine uh, simultaneously, which I don't recommend. But it's kind of <laughs> like, hey, I got it. You know, we. I did it, you know, along with my second child was born in the midst of all that too. So it was, it was kind of a nightmare, but, um, you know, it wow. worked. Oh, well, yeah, definitely not doing both of them at the same time is probably sound advice, but as is not going into your advanced certification, just, you know, without going <laughs> through noticed. the course. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So but, that was... You know, I had really good mentors. I mean, that's really it. We were really quite serious about our blind tasting. And, and it was, you know, I was in the fortunate position of being a wholesaler that had a massive wine book. So I'd just been exposed to all this stuff. A lot of studying. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I think that something that's really important to touch on, if it's not as widely known is you are one uh, to, to the listener base who's like learning more about wine, but you are one of only four people in the entire world to achieve both master sommelier and a master of wine. What, you know, you, you talked about your friend pulling you in to like into the court program. Um, I guess just maybe talking a little bit about maybe some of the fundamental differences between master sommelier and a master of wine. Can you touch on those? Yeah, sure. I mean, when my friend Mendel Kahn, um, you know, uh, mentioned the Master Sommelier to me, he had said, well, you know, this is probably really well suited to you because you come out of the restaurant business and the, the Master Sommelier is so much about minutia for sure, but it is essentially about the, the, the depth of knowledge required is, is the ability, ability to um, remark upon any wine that could pop up in our restaurant list anywhere in the world. So um, it was one of those things of that really large and diverse uh, portfolio that that I had been helping manage for several years was really useful to me. It, it is that I typically tell people the Master Sommelier is about a mile wide and, and about you know six inches deep because you're not expected to have a, a, a you know sustained conversation about anything uh, about any particular thing that you're asked about, you're really expected just to recognize what any word on a on a wine label made anywhere in the world, what it says, what it means, what it uh, suggests, you know, what prices should be at, just those 
kinds of basic restaurant understandings, whereas the Master of Wine is very much a written exam. And you don't need to be necessarily fast on your feet like you do for the Master Sommelier, but you need to be very quick to uh, draft and and craft um, essays that are cogent, that are to the point, uh, have to be succinct, really, because you have a limited amount of time to respond to what can be very challenging questions at times. So um, as somebody who had come out of the theater, you know, I always felt comfortable table side. Uh, if people are firing questions at me, I, it's a good time. I used to be a salesman, you know, I was still working as a salesman at that point in time. So it was, it was easy for me to, to, to deal with that. And I had always been obsessed with trying to be a decent writer ever since I was a little kid. And, and so that the master of wine side of things, which tends to be more, um, uh, overarching, you have to understand, have, have greater depth, if you will, uh, knowledge of, of the specifics of wine growing, winemaking, maturation, marketing, and such. But you may not need to know all of that minutia that the master sommelier would require, would require. So, um, for me, the MW, just like the MS, it really just kind of fit my personality. And, and so when people are like, Oh, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, well, you know, it comes back to, it proved I could pass those two tests and maybe those two tests are, are kind of made for people like me. Um, it, it isn't, it isn't the be all and end all. There's a lot of really talented people who have not been successful at those tests who are incredible minds in, in our industry and are incredible, incredible assets to our industry. So, you know, for me, a lot of times the, I'd, I'd have to be honest and say the only reason there's a handful of us is that most people are happy doing one or the other and don't feel, you know, the insecurity that a wine guy from Kansas City has, you know, <laughs> I need, I needs me a couple of titles, you know, people feel like Kansas City, huh? Yeah. My favorite uh, question is always, oh, that's so interesting. Where do you live now? I'm like, Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm curious, uh, what did what was your thesis on for your Master of Wine? Oh, I'm the last year uh, that you could pass it without having to write a dissertation, which oh. is, is a beautiful thing. It, it was a great motivation. It took me uh, a couple of tries to get through the MW. I passed the theory first go and then the tasting the next year. And thank God, because I'm sure I'd have driven myself crazy with that dissertation. I, I didn't have to write one, thankfully. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's such an incredible accomplishment. I think it probably, like you said, people always ask, where do you live now? Um, <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, that's it, not a fair question. Just maybe Kansas City, the food and wine scene needs to like needs more light shown on it because people, you know, would say, why not New York or San Francisco? If you were asked that about today's food and wine scene, what would your answer be? Well, I, 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 um, chose to remain here partly because though I did get job offers in, in New York and other places, my, my wife was uh, wisely adamant about the fact that we had some family here. So we had some support network um, for, for raising our kids. And I also was keenly interested in trying to write about wine and knew that I wasn't really going to be making a lot of money doing that. So I might as well live in a, in a cheap place to live. And I, I do think that I've been fortunate, um, to, to be here where the, the guns, I don't feel the gun to my head all the time to, to, um, try to, you know, 
make a ton of money or to make choices that that um, uh, provide me with a, a fatter living when I feel like I've been able to make the choices that interest me as a person more so than just trying to pay the bills. That's amazing. Just following your passion, following your heart. Uh, one of the big changes that you made out of the restaurant industry was shifting it to distribution. What led you to that decision? Oh, that was a that was an easy one. I still remember the the pitch that was made to me uh, by my friend Mendel Kahn, who, uh, like I said, is still a wholesaler in in the Bay Area. But he, he was uh, the guy who hired me here, and and he said, you know, well, you're writing a couple of uh, restaurant wine lists at the hotel I was at. He was like, you get to write two different restaurant wine lists, and I was like, yeah, it's great. I love that. He was like, so that you really enjoy writing wine lists. And I said, oh man, I love it. It's just so fascinating to, you know, try to match with the scene and everything. He said, well, how would you like to write, I don't know, a hundred wine lists? I was like, really? And he said, yeah. Uh, if I give you, I don't know, 75 restaurant slash hotel accounts, they're going to need you to help them write the wine lists. I was like, really? I could do that. <laughs> That's a job. <laughs> you know? And and it was definitely what what uh, absolutely goosed me on it. It was like, oh my God, this is so much fun. Because yeah, in essence, um, obviously I wasn't actually writing the list, but in those days, that was how we uh, proved to ourselves and to each other that we were doing a good job. And I would say to somebody, uh, if I was trying to hire them away from another company or trying to explain what they were doing, I was like, when's the last time you wrote somebody's wine list? And if they're like, ah, I don't know, it's been a couple of years. I'm like, you're in the wrong spot, son. You need to, you know, you need to have a book where you can actually help somebody write a wine list, and it does you good, and it does them good. So that was fun. I, I, I dug the hell out of that. I still think that's a great time. That's amazing. It's something that's I think really cool. You, you tend to like shy away from really established wine regions that people would think of like Burgundy, and focus on lesser known wine regions. Um, was it just curiosity or were you trying to, are you, are you trying to demonstrate that there are other amazing wine regions in the world? Well, I think it's certainly both of those things. I, in, in truth, it's also the issue that I can't afford Burgundy anymore. You know, I can't <laughs> afford can Bordeaux anymore, you know, it sucks. And, and so, um, just because I'm, I'm always going to, track down wines that I want to drink, I'm going to have to go to places that, that other people aren't necessarily thinking of. Um, so yeah, it is kind of a drag, uh, that, that things like Burgundy and, and, uh, and classified growth Bordeaux really don't fit my budget anymore. Yeah. You know, I can buy, uh, you know, Burgundy Rouge and Burgundy Blanc and, and such, but, but, the exalted stuff, it's, it's out of reach anymore. And, and, and so that's part of my motivation was that I, I want to be able to show people wines they can afford. Um, I, I, I suppose because I didn't live in New York or Vegas or, or, or San Francisco or such that it didn't make any sense for me to get all excited about Grand Cru Burgundy because one, I can't get it, or at least I can't afford it. I, I can drink it at some event but that doesn't do my customers much good because at the end of the day, they still need something on the list that's going to be less than a hundred bucks. And that just doesn't apply anymore. So, so yeah, it's all of those things really, but, but it's, it's also keen, keenly uh, true to me that every place that makes wine has some hidden treasures there and, and uh, any idiot can, 
find some 100-point wine that somebody else gave 100 points to or that has a tremendous history of, of greatness. It, it takes a little more, not much, but a little more talent to, to ferret out the cool stuff that doesn't cost a fortune. I think that's amazing. And, and that's, that's most of us, right? That's me. That's, you know, mm-hmm. that's you. That's just, you know, what the average consumer is looking for uh, in wine. You know, we're not going to try and go spend a fortune. It's more of, you know, finding those gems that you're talking about. And I, I think that that's, that's perfect for almost everyone. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some folks that don't have to live that way. They can buy what they want. You know, God bless them. Absolutely. So you've said before, and you you said it before on the podcast, just, you know, talking with you now, but wine is a condiment to food. Can you elaborate on that? And also tell me about some of the most fascinating food and wine pairings that you've come across? Sure. I, I really do. Um, I get frustrated with uh, the wine business when it, it um, sort of starts gazing at its own navel and exalting its own, um, uh, you know, importance. Uh, I'm, I'm there to make chef's food taste better. I mean, that's, that's my job. And, and I'm supposed to sell stuff and I'm supposed to make people excited to be in the restaurant. But, you know, they didn't come to the restaurant to see me and they didn't come to the restaurant to drink wine in general. You know, they came to the restaurant to eat. And so if I'm good at my job at all, I'm going to find something that makes the food taste better, that makes the whole experience memorable that uh, obviously makes some money for the restaurant and, and me and and everything else is is second place. I, I just I get really frustrated with some places ha- that that turn into a temple of wine because I, I just don't believe in the the sustainability of that. I, 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 restaurants are for me these communal places, so um, I, I I need to make chef happy. I guess you know I guess that's a chef that. Uh, you know, terrified me as chefs do. And so I learned <laughs> to respect them as, as I should. Uh, yep. I certainly understand that. Gordon could be terrifying as well. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so I, then if you were to give advice to, you know, somebody who's just listening, who finds wine very intimidating, especially at restaurants with those large wine lists, what advice would you give someone who's like out on a date or maybe taking a client out to dinner that has no idea which wine to select when they're, you know, choosing their, their food or the wine to go with it? What's, what are some staple suggestions you would give? Well, I I would say first and foremost, don't, don't feel like the lone stranger that you're shopping by price. We all shop by price. All of us are going (laughs) Uh, can't afford it. Can't afford it. Can't afford it. No way. No way. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Forty-five dollars. Yeah, not bad. You know. I mean, come on. You know. Let, let's let's be honest. We're trying to get. I, I actually one of my favorite tales was um, there was a wonderful uh, restaurant in Kansas City uh, run by a man named Cliff Bath. Uh, may he rest in peace. And it was a Grand Award winner. And um, he used to. I fa- I found out later on. I would drag my wine salesman. Um, to his restaurant every Friday afternoon. This is back in the old days. Uh, so we'd have a nice long lunch and then we'd get roaring drunk and drink a bunch of wines. And I found out years later that every Saturday morning, my bill had to be on Cliff's desk because he had about 2,000 wines on the wine list. But whatever wine I bought, 
he would raise the price of that wine because he knew <laughs> I was only looking for the bargains. And it's true. <laughs> it's totally how we rolled. It was like, oh, yeah, here you go. It, oh, yeah, this price hasn't been changed lately. So um, anyway, I, you know, I, I really do feel um, strongly that, that it's okay to shop by price. It's okay to look for bargains and values. Um, but having said that, we all have our preferences. And I'm, I, I um, do tend to lean towards um, European whites and European reds. And there's just so many options there that I can look through that list and find something that is a quote unquote uh, good bargain. If I'm doing so, I'm probably these days, I'm probably looking at, at Beaujolais when it comes to inexpensive reds. It works with a variety of foods. I'm, I'm going to have fun with it. It's going to be something uh, affordable, but something fun and intriguing often. You know, some of them are a little funky sometimes, but I don't mind that. I'm not going to have a second bottle, but, you know, I'm going to try one. Um, the Rhone Valley strikes me like that. Um, certainly Italian reds and Italian whites both. I'm going to go through there and see if there's any, you know, fun little unusual things there. I'm probably not going to drink your average Pinot Grigio, but um, I'm, I might look across uh, to Alsace as well to see if they've got any uh, cool bargains there. I just, I like the character and the structure of those wines. And and my friends who <laughs> who would, if, if they listened to this, they'd be like, Frost, be honest, you're going to order German wine. It's like, hell yeah, I'm going to have German wine. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. I, I just, I love those wines and I tend to like spicy foods. So it, I even like the Haltrocken and, and uh, uh, German wines that have some some sweetness to them. I'm more likely to order those than I am to or, order a, uh, a Grosses Gewex or a Trocken uh, Riesling from Germany. Um, having said that, I, I might be getting a Rhone uh, variety wine from Sierra Foothills or from Washington State. I love Oregon Pinot Noir. I, I you know, we could go on and on and on. Um, every country, every region for me hold some value and and uh, I'm going to look for the bargain first and foremost. And I think people should do that. They should figure out what it is they like and then figure out some names that they can rely upon. And then when you talk to the server or when you talk to the sommelier, I say, look, you know, I didn't see it here, but I really like X and I also like Y. You have anything like that? And if they're knowledgeable at all, they'll be like, yeah, actually, I do have something like that. And, and that's the way to start a conversation. I think just tell people, here's what I like. You know, what do you have that might remind me of that? And, and uh, if they do a good job, you know, trust them and do it again. That's great. Are there any sort of um, like resources? I don't know any like easy read books that you might recommend to somebody who's just getting into wine and wants to, I guess, explore their own palate more and what they like. Uh, well, yes, uh, certainly. I, I think that um, the the books that are out there, and, and these days, of course, everything is out there online um, somewhere. Are um, uh, th there's a lot to learn, a lot available to learn, um, whether it's the more, you know, kind of uh, generic uh, or or generic uh, styled book like the Wine for Dummies uh, series and things like that, or whether it's something specific. But I really, when, when somebody's trying to learn about wine, I, I just think there's uh, there's just no substitute for find persons of a similar bent and everybody brings a bottle and everybody tastes and, and, you know, taste with other people and talk to other people about their experiences because we all have differing palates. And, and, and so the idea that you're just going to buy wines that some nameless person 
gave a high score to, to me is, is ludicrous. Unless that man or woman is coming over for dinner, who gives a damn what, what score they gave that wine, you know? Uh, find out what you like, find out what your friends like and start exploring that. And I, and I think it's so much easier when you join a group of some sort. And I know that's for a lot of people that, that seems daunting, but it's not, you know, everybody's looking for other friends that, that are enthusiastic about the things they're enthusiastic about. And, and yeah, you might run it, run into some wine snobs. And if there's a snobby group there, find a different group. You can usually <laughs> yes. do so, you know, through a retail um, uh, chain, most of the retail store, I should say, most of the really cool dedicated wine stores often have their own group that gets together on a regular basis, or at least can turn you on to that group. And and then you start to have a chance to taste more than just what your uh, own wallet is ready to, you know, uh, open up for. I think that's such great advice. You know, it's, it's definitely like that resonates with me a lot. Because before my husband and I started dating, I knew like nothing about wine. I knew I liked it specifically cheap wine at the time, which whatever, that's where I started. But if I had, um, you know, I would rely on things like scores from Robert Parker, James Suckling, um, you know, the 100 point system, which, you know, it it can have its place, but maybe your palates don't necessarily align. But I think that it can be really scary to say, you know, I don't know shit about this wine, <laughs> you know, to yeah. just be honest about it. Um, what are your thoughts on like any sort of reliability on the 100 point system? Yeah, I'm, I'm just not a, a, a points guy um, because to, to take Parker as an example, and, and I respect the guy enormously, but his palate and my palate are as different as chalk and cheese. If he gives something a hundred point score and I, I start reading the, the review, I'm like, you know, I'm not even going to like that one. It's probably going to be too alcoholic, too extracted, too big. It's not going to be balanced according to my palate. Now, it is balanced according to his palate. So I'm not calling him out to say, no, he's wrong. It's just that my palate, I'm, I'm, I am hypersensitive bitter. So I don't like these big tannic wines. I tend to be sort of low sensitivity to acidity. So I like more tart flavors and more tart wines. Um, I, I, I am these days not really a fan of, of wines where the alcohols are more than 15% or so. It just doesn't taste right to me anymore. And plus I can't drink that much of it. You know what I mean? And, and <laughs> yeah. I, I like my glasses of wine, you know, damn it. That, that was a, and that's plural glasses of wine, you know? So, um, Same. I, yeah, I just don't hold, I, I don't give it much stock anymore. I know that most people are looking for some quick and easy way to figure out what's good, but unless that man or woman's palate is the same as yours, and and it's probably not. How is that going to help? I, I you know I I like liver and onions. A whole bunch of people don't like liver and onions. So you know it's not like my palate's educated and theirs isn't, or theirs is and mine isn't. It's it's we are literally having different experiences because our palates are different, and our sensitivities are different, and our experiences are different. So I, I think that the whole points idea was was shorthand, but it, it really hasn't worked out in the long run. I think it, it comes back to what kind of wines do you like? You find a retailer that that is going to at least listen to you. And when you go, yeah, I liked that wine. I didn't like that wine that much. They should be like, oh, cool. Here, let me show you something else, something you haven't tried before. And points are pointless. Yeah, I think that's valid. I'm curious. Uh, so something that it doesn't happen often with me, but it happens enough to 
um, to notice it is my wine tastes seem to go through seasons. So like one season. Yeah. Is that normal? Yeah. No, I'm with you. Totally. Okay. Yeah. So one season I can be completely feeling like Cab Franc and, you know, I can be into more of like a Chardonnay that has bigger malolactic fermentation, more buttery. And then the next year I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I find that, um, there's something of novelty that I want out of my wines. I like finding new flavors, new styles and things like that. At the same time, you know, there's something of comfort in it all that I, in the, in the dead of winter, you know, I'm probably not going to go drag my German white wine up in the dead of winter. I'm looking for Barolo, you know, I'm looking for Barolo. I want big, you know, intense Northern Rhone. I'll be having a, a, Cali cab for God's sakes, you know, it, it's, you know, an Aussie Shiraz, I'm okay with that stuff. Um, so I drink by the seasons as well. It, it's funny. I was just thinking last night about it, that it'd been a while since I'd cracked open a white wine. I, I, uh, which is unusual for me. I drink in general, I think I drink more white wine than red, which I think is, is unusual for, for a lot of people in, in our industry, but I don't care, you know, I'm going to drink what I like, but I was crapping it open another red going, what's with me and red wine right now? And I thought, well, you know, it's still cold. Damn it. You know, <laughs> I need to warm up. You know, I'm not, I'm not quite ready to face up to my, uh, my white wine right out of the, the uh, cold box, but come August in Kansas city when it's 101 and the humidity is 92%. Oh, hell yeah. You know, I'm going to be <laughs> dropping ice cubes in that stuff and people just need to get over it. that's awesome. Um, So I think that kind of goes into what you were saying, though, about like wine being a condiment to food. And just like in the winter, you don't want to have like, you know, fresh oysters necessarily, you might want some like really nice warm beef stew and something that can hold up to that. That to me, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I feel much the same way. So this is a very difficult question um, because you've experienced so many amazing wines, but um, can you share your story on the best glass of wine you've ever had? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what that would be, except I lie. And I, I definitely know, I put it this way, I can, I can think of one wine that, you know, I hope someday somebody will go, yeah, I heard you on that podcast. And I heard you talking about 62 Latash, <laughs> and I brought a bottle. And I'd be like, oh, I love you so much, man. Because, <laughs> yeah, 62 Latash, I wish I could have that again. There's not a lot of wines that I, that I really wish I could have again, but I wish I could have that wine again. That, 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 was, that was really something. It, was, it really was. Um, well, it's funny because well, we some- had it uh, like a week after we had 37 Romani Conti, and that was pretty cool too. It was somebody's cellar that uh, the gentleman had passed away, and one of the one of the gang here in Kansas City got a hold of it and sold a bunch of it and kept a bunch of it, and so we were having some uh, Domenico Romani Conti fun for for a few months there. <laughs> what was it that was special about that to you? Can you describe it, or is it more of just a feeling? It, it's hard to describe great Burgundy for sure, but it is um, that that earthiness. You know, I mentioned before, I'm, I'm somebody who my wife and I both really like liver and onions, you know, <laughs> most people don't think that. And, and I hope I don't 
turn people off to Burgundy by saying, but you know, there's something of that iron earth element in, in, in Burgundy, but there's also the suppleness and tannins are relatively low and the acidity might be a little higher and the aromatics are very much a part of it all. And the length and you know, the longevity of the flavor is such a factor and it's so subtle and, and just draws you in and, and, um, yeah, I, I, I can, I think I can still taste that wine, even though that's been decades now. Um, but it was, it was, you know, that silky thing that, that time provides as, as, um, tannins change inside a bottle of wine and polysaccharides and other sorts of elements start to, to create, um, this literally silky texture. It had that. That sounds amazing. And I can still hear the love that you have for that wine in your voice. Yeah, I, would, I wish I could have it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody listening, yeah. you know what you know what to, uh, to bring <laughs> Doug Frost. Okay. Uh, can we jump a minute into blind tasting? Uh, it seems absolutely crazy that to become a master sommelier, you have to be an expert at being able to look and smell and taste a glass of wine to be able to tell what the varietal is, where it's from, how old it is. I mean, it seems impossible for the average person. How did you master your ability? And like, how would you recommend like first steps for for starting to hone in on those things? Yeah, very much. I, I would say um, always blind taste. Uh, it, it's something that we did a lot for fun. And, uh, it was, it provided training, you know, as, as it were before I uh, got involved in these programs, but blind taste and blind taste in, in context. Um, sometimes that means that you're going to taste Syrah from around the world. Sometimes that means you're going to just focus on Washington state wines just from Walla Walla and see what, what, you know, commonality those have, but, um, also taste more than one wine. I think what blows a lot of people away, this idea that, oh, you know, you must have this amazing palate because you can get, pick all that stuff up. And, and they probably have, or at least I think when people don't imagine themselves able to do that, it's because they've never done it where there's two or three wines there. The body is not set up to pick up a glass of wine and start throwing all sorts of descriptors out. The body's really set up to notice the difference between various flavors in front of you. So the, in an ideal world, you put three glasses in front of you and, and you start asking yourself, well, which one has more black fruits than red fruits? Is, is, do either of these have blue fruits to them? Which one is more tannic? Which one is, is more acidic? Which one has more spice to it? And, and what kind of spice? Which spice is it? And, 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 you know, start asking all these questions about it. Which one has fruit that tends, that seems to be riper and which one has fruit that tends to be more tart and underripe. And the brain will engage really quickly on those questions. And then when it comes to blind tasting, it's just a matter of knowing what those messages, those descriptors mean. I, um, years ago had a very funny experience that, that I've, I've always, um, harked back to where I was doing a lot of classes for Disney at Disney world. And, um, I had a class of about a hundred people. It was really just a, uh, an event for, um, you know, consumers at, at, I think it was Epcot food and wine fest. And uh, we would do this where I would be blind tasted along with the people and we'd figure out the wines were, and one person there knew what the wines were, would reveal them. And it was great fun. Only this time they forgot to pour me the wines. I had empty glasses in front of me 
And I was just arguing with some woman who was like, no, there's no way. You have an amazing palate. You just need to go ahead and admit it. And I'm like, no, it's not that. It's just I know what the messages mean. So I, it, I took that as a perfect opportunity. We blind tasted the wine as a group. Now, I, ha- I did have to admit, I pulled up one guy out of the audience who I knew to, to kind of act in my role, to, to answer questions and, and to sort of lead the thing. And I just listened. I, didn't, I never smelled them. I never looked at them. I never tasted them. And I got five of the six wines right. He only got wow. four of the six wines right. <laughs> so <laughs> to me, it was like, I rest my case. I know what the messages mean. And, and, and that's what the, you know, that's how one gets good at, at blind tasting. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, so then with that, with lots of practice, do you, are you taking notes while you're, while you're going through this? Is it just a, is it an active discussion? Cause they feel like once the first glass is down, people probably start conversing a lot more about what they think they're getting than at the beginning of the first one. Yeah, for me, it's it's very much a um, it's a it's a business. And when we you know when we taste competitively, and uh, when I'm uh, tasting to do reviews or to do um, wine purchasing decisions, as much as possible, I want everything blind. I want everything quiet. Everybody, make your own mind up. Once you're done, okay, let's compare notes. What did you have? You know, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And and you respect and in. and benefit from having other people's palates at work there. But for me, first and foremost, I, I, yeah, I have very much a, a strict sort of um, a set of questions that I'm going to ask myself and, and observations that I, I feel I have to make in order to, to make an informed decision about that wine. So what are, I, I know, um, obviously I am not a sommelier. I, I don't know this, but I've read like there are the steps that you, one should go through, you should, you know, first identifying like the earth components or the fruit components or like what, what is your method for identifying those, those things to kind of keep your brain focused on that particular area? Yeah. I, as I teach people, I teach them to do it the same way every time. Um, not everybody teaches the same way. Everybody has different ways of doing it. But for me, it's crucial so that it's a, a series of steps. I, I never drop one of those um, steps, but I'm, I'm first going to look at the wine. I'm going to see what I can learn about the color, how deeply pigmented um, is this wine. Hence, how deeply pigmented was the grape? Um, is it showing age as, as color breaks up, as wines age, the color will break up into sort of striations? Um, does the color uh, push all the way to the end of the glass? Hence, there's probably high extract and high concentration. Does the, uh, do the, you know, the, the tears roll slowly down the side of the glass or fall more uh, quickly? Are they bigger? And the wine is probably slightly higher in alcohol. Um, when it comes to the nose, I'm going to check for flaws. I'm going to check for intensity because generally speaking, um, warmer sites have greater intensity than, than cooler sites, but certainly some grapes have greater intensity than other grapes. You know, Sauvignon Blanc, far more so than, than Chardonnay. Uh, I'm going to be smelling for spices, which tell me about barrel. Generally speaking, I'm going to be looking for flowers and fruits and the condition of those fruits and herbs and vegetables, which are going to tell me about uh, the climate uh, to some degree, because riper grapes are going to have fewer of the vegetal notes and more of these kind of overripe, uh, extracted, concentrated fruit uh, aromas, and uh, but it'll tell me about the variety as well. And then I'm going to be looking for um, things like earth and and um, trying to d- determine um, how much barrel was used here, what kind of barrel, 
for how long, maybe you know the conditions of, of that, wet cellar, dry cellar, things like that will start to leave little marks here and there in, in the aromas. Um, and, and then you're going to do the same thing all over again when you taste the wine. And sometimes there'll be contradictions between the two. And those can be you know, illustrative of, of some uh, character. And then you're finally looking for uh, balance and length and intensity and, and complexity. And, and all that stuff will begin to tell you about how expensive this wine might be and, and you know, whether it's, it's a wine made for the long Hall or it's wine just meant to be drunk tonight and and what can that tell you about the person who made it their intentions and and uh you know you start to put all that sort of on a grid is the way we were trained in the master sommelier program and and i don't exactly use a grid but it's a series of questions and it, and it eventually relates to a grid and and so with the master sommelier program we always teach people that grid and with the master of wine i try to teach them how to use a, a, a version of that grid to then answer the questions that you're going to be asked in the mw because you're going to be asked questions about how the wine is made and what condition it's in and and all sorts of uh, uh of things like that wow so then with you know the master sommelier it, it's a really small community with less than uh, there's less than 300 master um, yeah, yeah yeah we're but both organizations are are around the 300 mark or so so with blind tasting um you know come coming across as really competitive are there any master psalms who claim or are recognized as maybe some of the best blind tasters well, there are definitely, uh, as in uh, with the uh, Master of Wine program as well, there are um, certain awards that you can get when you're a particularly um, skilled taster. And but but everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. And and so you know, if I started trying to name off the people I've seen who've who've done great work at times, I, I I'd leave somebody out. But yeah, I've. I've definitely seen some people that I'm always just like, wow, dude, you're really good at this. And I, and, and you know what, I can think of a few people who are really, really good at this, who are not either master sommeliers or masters of wine. You know, it's not just that I, I, I work with folks that I think are great tasters and, and, uh, on the spirits and cocktail side as well. And it's just, um, everybody has their strengths and weaknesses and, and it's a, it's a process. It's not an end point. Um, and I think anybody who, who remarks differently is, is kind of missing out on, on the fun of this thing. <laughs> so then, so you mentioned spirits and that actually was something that I was curious about next is, um, are, is that a field that, uh, sommeliers need to be experienced with as well? I think so. The master sommelier program is always going to ask you questions about spirits and cocktails. It's not going to be as in depth as the, the the wine questions, but beer questions can can arise uh, as, as well. I mean, the, the idea behind a master sommelier is that you can drop them into any restaurant anywhere in the world, and they're going to know what to do if somebody needs a beverage, and and they're not going to screw it up if they manage a beverage program either. So um, the MW is very different in that it is only about wine, but it's far more focused upon uh, viticulture and vinification and things and marketing and things like that. So, yeah, and it's always interested me. I've never understood why there seems to be some sort of barrier between spirits, cocktails, and, and wine and beer. I never, never really understood that. I, I kind of like to drink them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, especially the, like with your you being so in touch with, you know, what you're getting off of 
wine in particular, but you know what you're drinking, I think that you just naturally would pay more attention to that kind of across the board. Yeah, uh, any more than than a chef, it would make much sense to me. Even if a chef was at a seafood place, they'd be like, "No, nope, no, I can't do pork. I don't even know what it tastes like." You know, I mean, that would be ludicrous. You'd be like, <laughs> yeah. Wait, "What?" You know, but yes. you'll have that. I, I've run into that with with um, you know people in the industry sometimes. They're like, "Nope, no, I can't. No, I can't touch cocktails. No, that not, <laughs> no, that's not for me." And I'm just like, "Really?" Uh, you know, so who knows. Oh, man. So I actually I have your uh, fellow master sommelier Evan Goldstein who's going to be joining the podcast as well and I awesome. yes I'm very excited about that as well um, and he's played a a big part in your wine career can you tell me about the Sterling School of Service and Hospitality and its mission Yes absolutely that was that was a big uh, a transition point for me in my career. And, and Evan was, you know, the guy who let me show up at a master small exam without having taken the prerequisites. Yeah. I'm going to talk to God, him about that too. God bless him for that. I'm sure at this point he's like, yeah, that was a mistake. I'm sorry I did that. <laughs> Clearly not. <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, he, he, uh, eventually, um, he was running the Sterling school of service and hospitality, um, for the Seagram group. And, it was associated with Sterling Winery, and it was all about wine and, and wine service and, and uh, the, the breadth of wines. And then he was given the charge to create a spirits and cocktail program. And he knew me and he knew a, a gentleman named Steve Olson, who had been in the Master Sommelier program and who is a really inspired taster. Um, and, and so he approached the two of us cause he knew we were friends and he knew we were both kind of spirits geeks on the side as well. And we both leapt at the chance because we lived in, he lived in New York. I lived in Kansas city. We had wanted to work together. And, and suddenly this was like, oh dude, you know, this was just like manna from heaven. We, um, Steve being Steve and, and I guess at the time me being me, we, um, kicked it around a lot uh, on the phone, and then we had to fly out to Napa and present the program. So we um, stayed up all night, because you know Steve being Steve and me being, <laughs> we stayed up all night. <laughs> About 6.30 in the morning, we ran off to our rooms, took showers, and then uh, at eight in the morning, we presented this uh, uh, six-hour program to, um, to, to the assembled uh, folks. And Evan was given the charge to, okay, tweak that and make that work for us. But, you know, this is good enough. And, and Evan was a fantastic boss in that. I mean, he really let us do what we wanted to do. And, and Steve uh, has a theatrical background as well. But, you know, I'm a shameless ham. So the whole thing opened with me pretending to be a cop and, and busting the place uh, because it was prohibition and they were all in speak easy. I mean, it was just shameless hamming crap, but this is what happens when you put a couple of theater nerds in, in front of an audience and tell them to teach people about spirits and cocktail. It was really fun. And that was, you know, t- uh, well over 20 years ago before the the cocktail surge happened. Um, but as a result of that, we had a chance to work together for a number of years. And eventually we uh, created this program called BAR, uh, Beverage Alcohol Resource, with Dale DeGroff, who many, I think appropriately, consider kind of the father of the modern uh, cocktail movement, and Paul Packelt and David Wondrich, the author of Punch and Imbibe, and Andy Seymour. And, and, and man, we just, we've had a lot of fun with that program. It's, it's been around now for 14 years, and it's still going strong. 
That's awesome. Uh, so in addition to I just jumping back into uh, a couple of the questions that I have last and I, I appreciate all of your time. I know I've kept you for a while and this has been such an amazing story. Uh, in addition to um, your Master Sommelier and Master of Wine, you're also an award winning author. Can you share an overview of your work as well as the inspiration behind the work? I have always tried to um, write books that are useful um, to people trying to, you know, I guess I put it this way. Um, my, my, one of my brothers is, uh, or was an educator. He was a, a mathematics uh, college professor in mathematics uh, after he was a rock and roll musician. So, you know, I think uh-huh. we've all, in my family, we've all had like, you know, two strange careers. Um, but he, I remember talking to him one day when he looked at me, he said, you know, you're just an educator, aren't you? That's what you are trying to be. And I was like, yeah, I, 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 I uh, follow the Marshall McLuhan dictum of anybody who believes there's a difference between education and entertainment doesn't understand either one. Um, I, yes. you know, that's what I've hoped to do and, and, uh, tried, tried my damnedest to do in, in, in writing and, and to continue to do so. I think, First and foremost, I, I'm, I'm supposed to kind of bring information to people who don't have the time to, to devote to it as I did and, and try to cut through the, the crap and, and bring them, um, you know, some, some reveal, if you will, as to how to know um, what these wines are and how to learn to expect certain things from these wines and drinks and such so that they can predict what they're going to like. I, I, I'm just trying to, you know create shortcuts for people. That's amazing. So with so many transitions within the wine industry, what's next for you? Well, I, um, with a partner, I now co-own a, uh, about a 25 acre vineyard in Walla Walla, uh, actually on the Oregon side of the Walla Walla area and, uh, have Bordeaux varieties planted there and, uh, made, Oh, about a thousand cases worth of wine from the 2018 vintage. And I've got about uh, 2,400 cases of wine or so from the 2019 vintage, although it's all just still sitting in barrel. We actually just bottled up our first um, um, wines last week in uh, wow. the 2018 Syrah. Yeah. So um, I, I have a winemaker. You know, nobody needs a, a part time winemaker. That's the worst thing in the world. That's a terrible, <laughs> terrible thing. So I have one employee, and um, he and I, uh, you know, make decisions together, and, and then he has to go off and try to make them happen. Um, but I'm, I'm really, I am enjoying myself in that. It's, it's, it'll make you crazy trying to make wine and trying to be a, a farmer is, is probably a bad idea. But it's too late now. Um, I'm in, it. and so that's that's what I'm doing right now. I got to get ready to, to um, you know, start. Well, we haven't even turned the lights on the website yet. You know, so haven't even turned those lights on yet. So uh, we're just just getting started. I I figure I want that wine to to mellow out, and and since we just bottled it, I I wouldn't want to start selling it for at least another three months or so. I I um, I, I I think you want to sell wine that's in in drinkable shape. You know, when you hand yeah. It and so, and I feel fortunate that I'm in no rush to, to sell it until it's, it's um, where I want it to be. That's, that's incredible. So is it something that's going to be, I, I know you're, you're still, um, you're still in the process, you just started bottling, but is it, you're, you're going to have a website, it's going to be available through distribution or what's, what, where can people look for your wines once they become available? 
Yeah. Well, thank you for asking that. I was not my intention to, but, but yeah, the, the winery is called Echo Lands, just like it sounds, you know, Echo Lands, um, reflective, if you will, that I'm far away in Kansas city and it's all the way up there in Walla Walla. Um, but, uh, but as well that I think that, that wine is really just an echo of the place, um, because our wines are spe- vineyard specific and, and, um, they're all Walla Walla because I really like that area. And it's uh, amazing area. Yeah, it is. I really I like what's going on there. Um, so the the wines will once we turn the the lights on the website, just Echo Lands Wine or EchoLandsWinery.com, Once we turn those lights on, then you know hopefully we'll do some some DTC business, direct to consumer business, and we will be in some markets um, this first year. But I'm gonna I'm gonna take it slow. I just want to um, make sure I'm. Uh, you know, going into partnership with distributors that it works well for them and it works well for us. I was a distributor for 15 years or so. So I have respect for the, for the, um, the institution, the three tier system as it were, but I also know it's shortcomings. So, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take my time with this, but um, yeah, it's, it's the next phase. Definitely. I can't wait to try it. I'm definitely going to keep my eye out for for when your website goes live and be sure I'm one of the first to order. Oh, you're very kind. Well, you know, I'll have to shoot you a bottle anyway. Just let's just, let's just make that happen. So, all right, thanks. Uh, so, last question because I've taken up so much of your time. It actually was going to be what you think is the next up and coming wine region. Uh, actually, I'm going to go ahead and ask that. What do you think is the next up and coming wine region? And then I have one more question after that, and that's it. Sure. Um, you know, there, that, that, that is such a difficult question because every country I can go to and, and say, well, what about this? And what about that? You know, in, in New Zealand, I'm a Wairarapa guy and I really do, um, you know, while Centro Otago gets all the talk, uh, Wairarapa to me is, is pretty, pretty special for, for Pinot Noir. Um, in Australia, we're beginning to discover or focus finally upon the the, the cooler sites there. And, and I have to say, I, I'm kind of obsessed with McLarenville Grenache. Um, I, I'm still not feeling the love when it comes to Chinese wine. I know there's some cool stuff there, but you know, um, South Africa, the cooler sites of South Africa, particularly Svartland, um, Darling, uh, Sauvignon Blancs, and some of those old vines, Sansos and things like that, man, those are really good. And I just was down in Chile a few weeks back and old vine Sanso there and, and, Pais, old vine Pais there, and 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 uh, same, you know, some of those old vine sites in Argentina are super exciting. I actually Cabernet Franc from Argentina for me is like, man, that's the stuff, uh, more so than than Malbec, and 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 so I could kind of keep going. <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> to say, I I certainly think you know when we start talking about Italy, man, there's some cool stuff in Sicily. Norella Mascalese, you know, that is pretty cool stuff. And some of those old, great, almost forgotten grapevines in, in Italy, and I hope they come back. You know, I hope we, we protect those. And, and as you can tell, on and on and on. I, I feel like what's happening is that we're being allowed to look at old vine, uh, old vine varieties that people didn't have respect for for a while, like Pais and, and Senso and Carignan and things like that. Um, Spain is a tremendous source of, of great value and old grape varieties, as is Portugal. Grape varieties a lot of people haven't even heard of uh, and, and never paid attention to. So 
I, th- I think in a way that the sky's the limit. It, it's it's like every country that has been producing wine is is starting to ask itself, yes, but what else is there? What else can I do? And, and in general, how can I find myself going to cooler sites, making edgier wines, um, making wines uh, from regions that may not be able to guarantee me big fat wines every year, but maybe I don't want that anymore. Maybe I want wines that that show to me a, a little more subtleness and a subtlety, I should say, and, and personality. That's fascinating. I actually just wrote down to try Cab Franc from Argentina because I am a diehard Cab Franc fan oh, and cool. I have not tried it from Argentina. So that's you're, that's super interesting to me. Yeah, you're going to have fun. And, and then if I can make one pitch that I always feel like I have to make, drink local, try your local wine. <laughs> Check it out. There's great stuff going on all around the country, whether from you know hybrid grapes or traditional uh, vinifera varieties. Man, there's great stuff going on throughout the, the the country. People need to be knowledgeable of it. It's crazy that chefs know so much about local farmers and and then sommeliers only know about grape varieties in Europe. It, it's nuts to me. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic advice and good for all of us to hear. Um, so last question, um, if somebody were to visit Kansas city recommendations, places to eat, food to try, a great wine and food pairing experience, what would be your overall recommendation to anybody who's visiting Kansas city? Well, everybody comes here and they want to have barbecue. And, um, of course, you know, I'm always like, yeah, I'll, I'll take you out to barbecue. We'll do that. And yeah, and there's yeah. the, the place that everybody's heard of, which is really cool. Joe's KC, you know, the gas station is really awesome. And a lot of people love Q39. There's a bunch of other places to go. But for my money, I'm going to LC's every time. And LC's is kind of the bomb. But the truth is, I only have barbecue if people are visiting. Okay. I never eat barbecue unless somebody's like, hey, let's go to your favorite barbecue joint. Okay. We're going to LC's and we're going to smell like barbecue, uh, you know, for the next two days because you literally eat next, you know, right standing next to the pit. And uh, there's other good places, Woodyard, places like that. But um, for me, there's some really great talent here. And, and so I'm going to be as likely to drag somebody to a Vietnamese or a Thai spot as I am to um, in any place else. And, and people that I've had the, the good fortune of working with, like Michael Smith at Farina or Extra Virgin or Colby and Megan Geralt's at, at um, Room 39, pardon me, not Room 39, excuse me, at Blue Stem and, and Ted at Room 39 and, and Linda, who I work with at the restaurant at 1900 and Oh man, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna leave people out. I'm gonna be really embarrassed now because I should have had a list handy. But but I usually do. You know, when people are like, "Okay, where am I gonna eat?" I'm like, "I hear twelve places you must eat," and uh, a novel. Oh man, I always I always I forget to mention Ryan at, at novels doing really great work too. So yeah, there's there's a couple dozen restaurants in in my town that I think people should check out if they get here. Awesome. Well, maybe then. Um since it was really just on the fly question, if, uh, if you want to send me a list of those, or if I can reach out about a list of those, I can include those in the actual description of the podcast so that people will have those to read for recommendation. Awesome. Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Doug, for taking all of your time today to, to speak with me. I really love your story. It's, it is so dynamic and I just, 
I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I know that you're a very busy guy. Um, so thank you for taking your time to speak with me today. Well, thank you, Sarah. It was, it was great to talk to you. And, and maybe next time I get to hear your stories because you have some pretty fascinating stories. So I, I always feel badly when I, you know, I feel like I mansplained the whole day, you know. So uh, I, I feel like my story would not hold a candle to yours. So I'm glad that we touched on yours. This was amazing. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on the incredible stories we have coming up next. Also, please leave us a review. Your thoughts and feedback means the world to us in this community that we've built just for you. You can send me a note directly at sarah at everydayfoodandwine.com. Let me know what food and wine topics you would love to learn more about. Follow us on Instagram at Everyday Food and Wine and our amazing guest, Doug Frost, at Doug MSMW. That's D O U G M S M W. And share this episode with someone you know that would love the content. Please join me on the next episode where I have the pleasure of speaking with John Charles Boise. Forbes has dubbed him the James Bond of the wine industry, and he is a true Renaissance man, business tycoon, and lover of wine.